Welcome. Welcome. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to Love's Labours Watched, your favourite women-focused pop culture podcast. I'm really getting good at that. How are you all? I hope you're good. I'm good. Francesca, are you good? Yes, I'm good. Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we are back for another fun episode. We are really lucky to have another author on. And we're also going to chat about all things that we've been interested in this month, uh, like the Women's Prize, um, yeah. maybe a, a man crush or two, uh, and some other things. So it's going to be really quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah, so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, really exciting. And I think we're kicking things off with a great start because we are speaking to author Maggie Shipstead about her new novel, Great Circle. So uh, Maggie was uh, generous enough to come on the podcast. And essentially, she is an American writer and also a New York Times bestselling author of two novels called Seating Arrangements and Astonish Me. But she's also written for The New York Times, uh, Condé Nast Traveller and Outside. So it was really, really interesting to speak to her about this novel, 2021 novel her newest novel and it's inspired by aviation which is really exciting and we'll get more into that we'll let maggie tell you a bit more about the book and we'll come back afterwards with all our thoughts enjoy Hello. Hi. 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 Yeah, we're really excited to be able to chat about Great Circle. I think it's going to be really interesting to hear what you have to say about it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And I've listened to your podcast, so I know what's going on. Oh, great. (laughs) Most recently, I listened to Kylie Reid. And oh, I know what it was. And then also the one where you were talking about Emily in Paris, which I I had tried to watch it. I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah. It's quite a journey. It is is is, a real journey. Yeah. Uh, we ask this uh, of all of our authors who come on. Basically, um, for anyone who's not read the book yet, or maybe it's their first time hearing about it, uh, I think you can give us a spoiler-free summary of Great Circle and like what the book's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's kind of a hard book to describe. I sort of have like a four-second version and like a four-minute. So I'll do sort of the four-second one, which is that Great Circle is about a female pilot named Marion Graves who disappears while trying to fly around the world north-south in 1950. Um, But the book starts even before she's born and goes through her life and um, growing up in Montana, flying for a bootlegger, flying in the UK during World War II. And then her story is interwoven with that of a modern movie star named Hadley Baxter, who uh, has been the star of a sort of young adult romantic franchise and is coming out of a scandal um, and sort of has this chance to play Marion in a biopic and sees this as sort of a moment of potential redemption for herself. But then she gets sort of sucked into the question of, of what really happened to Marion and the mystery of her disappearance. And um, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And so we heard you were inspired to write the novel after seeing a statue of aviatrix Jean Batten. So we wondered if you could speak a bit about that first spark of inspiration and how that led to the book that we now hold in our hands today. Yeah, absolutely. So that was in fall of 2012, I believe. And so my first book had come out in June of that year. And I had already sold my second novel, Astonish Me, and was sort of waiting to start edits on it. And I thought um, I had 100 pages of a, 
a book that I thought would be my third novel. And so at this time, I was traveling in New Zealand by myself for about a month, and I'd planned to work on this this new project. And over the course of the, the period I was traveling, it just sort of died on me and became apparent it wasn't going to be a book. And so I was at the airport in Auckland at the end of this, sort of feeling sorry for myself because my book died. And uh, there was a statue of Jean Batten at the international terminal. And so she was the first person to fly solo from London to New Zealand in the thirties. And there's a quote from her um, engraved on the pedestal of the statue and says, I was destined to be a wanderer. And so for some reason I just thought, oh, everything's fine. I'll write a book about an aviatrix. Um, and I didn't start working on it for another two years, partly because I went into edits for Astonish Me and then promoting Astonish Me. And so by the time that had all sort of subsided, it was fall of 2014, um, which is right when I moved to Los Angeles and sort of had workspace and my books and my stuff together. And so that's when I just sort of sat down and started working on Great Circle and it'd been percolating in my mind a little bit. And I'd written a couple pieces um, that then got discarded. But yeah, it really was just this seeing the statue and thinking, oh, that's it. Yeah, what a story as well. I love the, the globe trotting nature of it. Um, it's very appropriate. And um, equally, obviously, um, Great Circle follows Marion's Myron's life. She's this fictional female aviator. And then, as you mentioned, Hadley, this Hollywood actor who's playing her in a biopic in kind of the present day. Um, and we noticed that Marion's parts of the novel are told through the third person, while Hadley's are in the first person, you know, this mixing of perspectives. Uh, and what is the what was the decision making process behind that? And what motivations did you have for dealing with them in these different um, points of view, really? So I don't plan my books before I write them. Like many people make a really detailed outline and I really wish I could work that way, but I find it sort of deadening. Um, so I just kind of have to jump in and start. But often what I need to really get going is at least two components. And so when I started Great Circle, I had this idea for Marion and I knew I would write it in third person. And I had written a short story previously in the first person with kind of this intense voice of a movie star and sort of playing with things that are known about Hollywood. The short story was a sort of Scientology story, kind of a take on Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Um, and I found the voice very interesting. And I, I like that, um, that sort of relationship that exists between real world events and the fictional ones. So. Pretty early on when I started drafting Great Circle, I'd say within the first month, maybe a few weeks, I just sort of out of the blue wrote a first person section with this movie star. Um, and it's not her first section in the book, but it's she's leaving a club with sort of a pop star um, and she knows she'll be photographed cheating on her famous boyfriend who's also in this movie series with her, kind of blowing up her life um, semi-intentionally. And so I wrote that and I didn't really know how it would connect to Marion, but I knew that I wanted it to be part of the book. So it kind of started from there. And, and I found the first person, I think like because the book's quite long and uh, a lot of it is in Marion's voice, I didn't want it to be this sort of solid loaf of like uniform historical fiction. And so Hadley's voice was a way to kind of cut through that with like a sharper, more acidic note. You know, it's like 
a squeeze of lemon or something in the book. Um, and it was really a relief for me to write those sections too, after sort of contending with long third person um, expanses. And so we have these two central characters whose stories we follow throughout the book, but the novel also encompasses lots of other characters' perspectives, um, past and present, and also lots of different locations and different eras. So we wondered, how did you kind of work to bring all these different strands of the novel together so cohesively? <laughs> well, it was sort of a nightmare. Um, because I'm not a planner, it was just kind of like building a house without a blueprint, you know, and you end up with like hallways to nowhere and like a turret and stairs that don't connect to anything. And um, it was a really long process of sort of wrangling this mass and and I I like to change points of view as a form of momentum like often when I feel a little bit stuck um I take that as a sign that I've sort of reached the end of the utility of that particular point of view for that moment and so I'll use a change to sort of go somewhere else but I really when I started I hadn't planned for it to um, be as sprawling as it is. And, and it was an ongoing process to sort of keep altering the structure to accommodate this. And um, as the book is now, the, the part of the narrative that deals with Marion's actual flight around the world comes at the very end and sort of a solid block. But as I initially conceived of it, that was broken up and sort of presented interstitially throughout the book. But it just became like one too many things for the reader to keep track of and it drained it of tension a little bit. So it works much better um, just all being stuck together. So things like that took a long time to kind of work out. And my first draft when I sold it to my publisher or I guess that would be a second draft, but that draft was 980 pages long of manuscript pages, um, which <laughs> is really long and too long. We in edits cut it down by about a quarter so the actual printed book like the manuscript pages and the printed pages are different but 600 pages and um you know with all that sprawl people say like oh does it really need to be 600 pages and it's like no of course not <laughs> but it is <laughs> you know like that's that's just um I think yeah the way it evolved and the kind of book it is is to be a pretty uh inclusive and expansive one and speaking particularly of, of Marion's sections uh there's a lot of that historical detail in there the creating of this historical world um how did you craft that was there a lot of research uh how did you kind of go about building those sections of the novel from the detail point of view mm. yeah there was a lot of research um which I tended to do as I went along like I would decide okay she'll live in Missoula, Montana in the 1920s and then you know I go online to like a used bookseller and find all these books that have like small press books or museum type books that have lots of photos of Missoula in that time or I'll use online resources that have sort of maps of the town at that time and just in that process just kind of the most basic kind of research to make sure I know what this place looks like um, I'll often come across these kind of interesting details and so like an example from the Missoula period is um there was kind of a red light district in the teens that was then sort of cleaned up. And so you could see maps of that neighborhood before and after this happened. And so that was sort of how I decided to introduce Marion's delivering sort of uh, black market booze for a bootlegger. And, and one of her clients is a brothel. And so 
that's sort of just happenstance research is what brought me to that plot point. And that would happen a lot. I just stumble across things and then put them in and they'd sort of drive a whole new arc of research. I was also really interested in all the the details surrounding flying and flying in different eras you know which obviously it changes as Marion is progressing in her career but also we get a snippet of what it's like to be behind a plane in the present day what kind of research did you do on that front so I'm not a pilot and I haven't taken flying lessons in New Zealand I took a glider ride and that's the only time I've sort of controlled a plane the pilot was sitting behind me and he he was like all right like go ahead and make a turn and I found it a very precarious feeling and spooky which is Hadley the actress when she takes a flying lesson that's how she feels um but my brother has been in the air force for 20 years and he doesn't fly anymore but he used to fly and and he was a child who was obsessed with airplanes it was just very apparent he'd be a pilot so he was a really useful resource um particularly with some of the practicalities like when I was choosing Marion's flight path and choosing what kind of airplane she would fly Um, But I really did a lot of reading. I read books both by and about pilots. You know, there are lots of accounts of of flight and um, sort of on the more technical side and then the more sort of, I don't know, lyrical experiential side. And I would also seek out chances to fly, particularly in more unusual aircraft as I traveled. Like I took a couple sort of glacier flights where you land on skis, which is something Marion does. Um, And then I had a really sort of, serendipitous moment at this little aviation museum in Montana. It was in Missoula. And I had spent two months in this small city before I really started writing Great Circle. And it was only after that I decided to set the book there. And so I'd come back maybe when I was a year, year and a half into drafting the book and um, went to this museum at the airport and was sort of poking around. And these two guys came and opened the big doors and started wheeling out this historic aircraft and kind of over their shoulder one guy was like tell that lady if she wants to come she can and I was like me like I'm the lady (laughs) and sure enough um I went out with them and it was a 1927 travel air uh and so they took me up for a ride and we just like flew around the Valley of Missoula. And, and so I decided to have that be the kind of plane Marion learned to fly in because I'd been in it. So I could see the perfect sort of view of, of Missoula from the perfect aircraft um, just totally by chance. And because of the, the generosity of these two random pilots. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine what I would do if someone just said, you know, <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I'll take you in wow. an airplane. Like, yeah, what could possibly yeah. go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, going back to Hadley then, uh, you know, she is this young, but, you know, massively, wildly famous Hollywood actress in a franchise that, uh, maybe forgive me for being presumptuous, but reminds me quite a lot of like the Hunger Games or, or Twilight or something yeah. like that. You know, the story that we all, the story of the actresses we all know. And she finds herself at the mercy of, of what comes along with the success she has. And I think her experience falling afoul of the interests that surround these huge franchises from the author to the production company and everything is kind of reminiscent of what some real life actresses have, have themselves gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, did you intend to sort of try and connect these uh, these themes with your book, particularly in light of Me Too? Or again, was that something that sort of came upon you as you wrote? Well, I certainly was thinking about Twilight from the beginning, just because Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson were a couple. And it 
part of what the book sort of dwells on is this idea that everybody, or not everybody, but fans of the franchise will tend to transfer some of those romantic feelings they have about the characters to the real life people. And that just seems like an unbearable amount of pressure, you know, and, and just being pursued by photographers and having people tell you the way to be a woman, the way to be in a relationship, all this. Um, and how sort of confining that is. I think people like to tell celebrities, oh, you have nothing to complain about. This is what you signed up for. But I don't think anyone can imagine what they're signing up for um, with any sort of accuracy. So I was very much thinking about real life with that. And like I said, I kind of like to play with that, like the preconceived or just sort of ambient awareness of, of these issues. And, and I started writing the book before, well before Me Too happened. Um, and so there's sort of a, a, a Me Too incident in the, in the book that I believe was already there before the Harvey Weinstein story broke. But something about, you know, Harvey Weinstein um, you know, it reminds me in some ways of when the Catholic church scandal broke here too, where it's like a huge bombshell and took the right journalists at the right time, but it was also kind of to the surprise of no one, you know, like altar boy jokes have existed forever and casting couch jokes have existed forever. And it's for a reason. It's incredibly real. Like the sort of tropes and cliches of Hollywood, um, come from reality. Absolutely. And so, I didn't really want to sort of blow those up or reverse them. I just wanted to dig into them and also fit them into like a little bit of a weirder um, narrative. And that was where I could kind of uh, stylistically, I think the Hollywood sequences are a little more, um, I don't know, unusual or playful or something than the Marion sections. And, and that was part, I felt able to do that partly because I was working with material that's, that's somewhat familiar for a reason. And although they are growing up in totally different periods of history, Hadley and Marion are connected in some interesting ways. Namely, they have similar starts in life. They were both raised by neglectful uncles. And Hadley feels this increasing connection with Marion as she researches her story and starts to play her in this biopic. Um, and we wondered, uh, why do you think that we sometimes look to historical figures from the past to try and understand our present? And do you think those parallels between Marianne and Hadley are actually there? Or is it more Hadley sort of imposing the parallels on Marianne as part of her quest to try and like search for meaning and purpose in her life and her career? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think kind of the process you're describing to me it reminds me a little bit of tarot cards or astrology in general where what you're getting from it isn't necessarily like a concrete factual meaning about your life or something that's going to happen it's more like a framework to a different sort of framework to see what's already happening to you and, and to think about things in new ways and I, I think that's what's happening to Hadley like there are these concrete parallels between her life and Marion's, but those coincidences are sort of inherently meaningless without her wanting to see meaning in them, which she does very badly. And, and she, she sees Marion as someone who knew exactly what she wanted, which is true in some ways, not in others, but 
that's part of Marion's significance to Hadley. And what Hadley wants is to know what she wants. You know, she's just sort of puzzled by what sort of life she should lead. Should she be more famous? Should she be less famous? How is this life as a movie star sustainable um, when there's kind of only one way to go and that's down? Um, so I think that's what initially draws her to Marion is just sort of, you know, maybe I can see sort of a map um, in this person. And then ultimately, I think what she takes away from Marion is, is a bit different from that, but um, still meaningful. I think for Marion, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, the search, the things she's looking for is the, the, the power of flight. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think flight is such an interesting uh, kind of uh, thing that's represented in so many different ways, you know, in literature and TV and film. Um, and often it represents this, you know, search for freedom, you know, whether it be like literal freedom or metaphorical freedom. Uh, and we're wondering of how much is Marion's relationship with flight actually that? Is it actually the search for freedom or is it did you would you say it was like something something different than that classic flight equals freedom kind of thing? Mm. I think freedom is definitely something that drives her. And I think initially she sees an airplane as this sort of perfect conduit to the freedom she wants. And she's had this sort of feral childhood. And so as she kind of comes into adolescence and discovers she wants to fly, it's a bit of a nasty surprise for her that her gender actually imposes some limits on her and people are skeptical of her ambitions and uh, are in no way interested in helping her become a pilot. Um, and then as she does become a pilot, she has to make some pretty major trade-offs, um, sort of getting in uh, in bed, literally and figuratively, with uh, a wealthy patron and, and kind of every everything that comes with that. Um, and I think she she starts to learn that, you know, flight has its its own strictures and limitations. It's, it's not perfect freedom and maybe kind of nothing is, but she still does know she wants to lead an unorthodox life. One of the guiding forces of her life is, is protecting that unorthodoxy, which involves very real sacrifice and very real barriers and a lot of work, you know, I don't think it's easy at all, especially in, in her era to, to sort of stray from the norm. So I think freedom as she wants it is probably something that's ultimately impossible. And even with this flight that she's so driven to make the round the world flight, I think it's unclear to her even what she wants from it because the nature of a circle is that if she succeeded, she would have been delivered back to her starting point, you know, and then the horizon just stretches out in front of you all over again and you're back where you started. So what is, what does it do? What does it mean? Um, I think we all have those experiences. You know, sometimes you get exactly what you want and you're like, cool, now what? <laughs> that's, you know, that's, uh, that's life, I guess. The female experience is in general explored in a lot of detail in Great Circle from the sort of 20th century traditional ideas of family values, expectations on women at that time, which, um, as you were saying, Marion tries to push back on. Um, but also the more kind of 21st century ideas of celebrity culture and what it means to kind of be young female in the spotlight. And both Hadley and Marion push back on those ideas of femininity that define their era, but also kind of try and navigate their own path, which isn't always easy. As you were saying, they find themselves 
victim of oppression and manipulation and we wondered what prompted you to explore you know this really interesting very vast theme of female experiences through the ages Mm. well I think you know it's in order to sustain a novel through the just lengthy and difficult process of writing it you just have to be really interested in, in your subject and your characters and so I found all those questions really interesting and it's not that I think I have the answers, it's that I thought the questions themselves were compelling. Um, and it's sort of developed organically. Like I think I had the idea of Marion being a pilot. Um, and as I wrote sort of forward through the plot, it just became more apparent to me all the obstacles there would be. Although there were, there were actually quite a few famous female pilots in the 20s and 30s. And we really mostly think about Amelia Earhart, I think, and, you know, maybe Beryl Markham in the U.S., maybe uh, Bessie Johnson, who is a, a Black pilot. Um, but there were a lot who were pretty much household names, and they're now totally forgotten. Um, and I think the reason Amelia Earhart has lingered was less about her flying than about her disappearance. Um, and that was also a real seed of the book, was... Uh, this question of disappearance versus death and how often those two things are the same, but we sort of process them very differently culturally. Um, but to circle back to your question, yeah, I just, I, I find the lives of women very interesting. Um, I think the pressures on women are sort of universal, whether or not people are always aware of them or want to acknowledge them or are even bothered by them. Um, and so it was sort of a chance to um, just really sit with those, those questions and try to make something out of them. That uh, time of the twenties and thirties um, when Marion comes of age, that is an era which often is viewed with this like kind of maybe not completely correct ideas of glamour or the age of exploration and, and adventure you know things that come to mind are like the aviator or, or great gatsby both films are with Leo dicaprio in them which did, <laughs> didn't mean to put that together but um yeah and i think obviously we all know that you know this time period was full with darker realities the great depression but I still think, still think people see it in a sort of gilded way. Um, and we were just interested in, um, if you were interested in those themes in your book of like taking American history and not reframing it, but tackling those questions of why you're right, why female explorers, for example, are kind of forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very much interested in this book and this pilot sort of existing in the real world or in the context of real history. So there are these sections that are like being complete history of such and so. And it, uh, the first one's, you know, Missoula, Montana. So it moves through 15,000 years of natural history. And, and there are other sections that deal with the history of, of real life pilots. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was an exciting genuinely an exciting period this this technological advance of flight I hadn't really appreciated fully until I um wrote this book and like for example the idea that Charles Lindbergh was present at the launch of Apollo 11 the moon launch is insane like he if you I've seen this his play in the spirit of St. Louis in the National Air and Space Museum and it's like 
it's like flying across the Atlantic in a laundry basket. It's insane. And it's terrifying to think about. And then to go from there to space flight in, in one person's lifetime is, is pretty boggling. Um, so I wanted to contextualize that. And, and one of my preoccupations in writing the book was scale, both sort of like how do you measure life against the planet? How do you measure life against time? Um, what does all of that mean? And flight was sort of a new sort of unit of measurement in some ways. Um, but yeah, I think there's always, you know, the truth of anything is, is complex, especially of a life. And just to take a Lindbergh, you know, he went from being the biggest hero in the world to being sort of reviled for a while because of his Nazi sympathies, fair enough. Um, and then in his old age, he, he sort of made another left turn. It was into conservation and indigenous people while meanwhile also having secret families in Germany. It's very strange. Um, but of course, like part of why I also had Marion and Hadley was to show the reader, you get a pretty close look at Marion's life in the way that Marion understands it. And then Hadley is a way of showing just how much is lost in translation, looking back on anyone else's life or looking at anyone's life from the outside. Um, there's just always complexity and kind of everything you've ever thought or experienced, it's gone when you die. Um, so yeah, I wanted, I wanted to sort of get at that um, through sort of the way I approach these eras as well. The theme of the book is definitely, or, or at least as I interpreted it, was like storytelling and adaptation and narrative and the complexities there. And in the book, there is a fictional book within the book and a diary. Um, and there's also a fictional film. So there's quite a, a sort of lot of meta layers. So we wondered if you could speak about that theme, but also if the book was to be translated into film or TV, as in your book, <laughs> how would you like those sort of different elements to be handled and how do you think they could be explored? Yeah, I was, that was definitely an intention of the book was to start showing all these different sort of pieces of, of perception and, and writing sort of spinning off from Marion's life. Um, and yeah, this, there's this sort of, uh, overwrought novel about her and uh, that sort of has nothing to do with her voice as as has been transmitted through her logbook, which she leaves behind in Antarctica before she vanishes. Um, so I was very interested in that. And I like books that have that element, um, like Possession springs to mind. Uh, there's a book called A Tale for the Time Being that's sort of about a woman interacting with a found diary and I always think that's really interesting. So that was part of why I did it. Um, I can't remember. Oh, if if Great Circle were adapted, it's hard to imagine it being adapted. I mean, yeah, I, with my other books, I could sort of conceptualize it, but this seems tricky. And I try um, when my other books have been optioned for development. I've never felt particularly concerned with how they would be handled. I'd sort of rather something be a good TV series and be different from the book than be faithful to the book and, and not sort of serve its purpose in that format. Um, so I don't know. I mean, yes, definitely it would be distorted uh, in ways good and bad if it were adapted, but I'd be 
super, super curious to see it. Finally, on that kind of similar theme, uh, we always like to kind of ask people come on the show for any recommendations for uh, books, films, TV, anything they've been enjoying, anything they'd like to recommend to our listeners. You know, it's uh, we are two people and it's always good to get uh, some more perspective. So is there anything you've been enjoying or want to kind of like flag that our listeners should go for? Uh, sure. Well, last night I just started watching this series. I don't know if it's made its way over there yet called Cruel Summer. Um, And part of why I was interested in it is that it's working on multiple timelines. So it's one teenage girl in 1993 on her 15th birthday, 1994 and 1995. And so each episode is set on a different day in the summer of those three years and kind of follows different characters. And there's a crime and and a mystery. And so it's a lot to keep track of. Um, But the sort of application of of a really complex structure to a story about a teenage girl, I think is really cool and really compelling. Um, So, so far, I'm really enjoying that. Um, Books, I just read a memoir called Heavy by Kiesei Lehman, which is, he's a black writer. Um, and it's about his upbringing and his life and also just his sense of his own body. Um, and it's really beautiful. Um, so I would recommend that as well. Awesome. Nice and simple. Two great recommendations. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the show will come over here. Yeah. Oh, but do you know what platform it was on? It's on Hulu here and it was made by Freeform. So Ooh. I don't Ooh, know. Uh, we'll have to see we'll keep an eye out yeah yeah yeah. people are talking about it so I feel like that's always a good sign oh yeah yeah yeah. for sure (laughs) yeah well thank you so much for speaking to us today we loved the book I think we both said it was so much in our wheelhouse of loving historical fiction but also you know sort of books about books and film and and also young adult film series Twilight (laughs) yeah so thank you so much guys thanks for having me yeah it was lovely talking to you So thank you so much to Maggie for speaking to us. That was such a great conversation. We so enjoyed it and we so enjoyed the book as well. I mean, it's this really broad, ambitious novel. As Maggie talked about in the interview, it spans this, you know, long period of time over this female aviator's life. It also delves into modern day Hollywood and our obsession with fame and celebrity. So there are so many themes there, so many characters, but I, I do feel like they all thread together really wonderfully and create this just really like, enveloping book that I I kind of wished I was reading on a beach somewhere you know like I feel like it would be like a great book to sort of delve into over a summer holiday and really enjoy kind of dipping in and out of that world yeah it'd be really nice to think we get into when you have um, not nothing else to do but you have time to really appreciate it I think that what I got especially from Maggie talking about it and giving us a bit of an insight into her process is how Mm. thoroughly researched this book was like we cannot we can say it does not skimp on the historical detail nor on the depth of characters and there's quite a lot going on quite a lot of different people come through and out of the novel and I think it seems very clear that she did a lot of work on this book um, as obviously most authors do but some I think really delve into the research the reading she said that she read a book about flying and on the technical technical details of all that kind of stuff and I really yeah I really vibe with that I really think that a book that is so not heavy on detail but meticulous in detail um I mean uh I find really uh, Lucy Jago's book for example reminds me of that as well they're very accurate yeah take on writing um sure sure it does mean that it's quite it's lengthy but I think it's on those books where it's packed with so much detail that you don't 
you feel that it's all it's all there for a reason which is really cool and we yeah it was great to get an insight into her process as well from hearing from her yeah and it's very lyrical and descriptive as well and you know she talked about having that experience of going up in the plane that she has her character Marion actually uh, learn to fly in and I think having had those experiences and also clearly being like a creative minded person who did all her research she's able to describe the scenery the settings the feeling of flying and the feeling of exploring the world in this really beautiful way uh, that's just incredibly engaging so although it's like full of facts and full of information it's it, it feels very much like it's yeah a lyrical beautiful novel at its core so yeah. I think you know for us it really combined a lot of things that we like in novels that we we really enjoy historical fiction we enjoy historical fiction that feels really grounded in its period I actually really feel like this there's a whole section in the second world war which we didn't particularly talk to Maggie about but that felt to me quite different from a lot of like second world war fiction it, it did feel like specific to the experience of like American military in the UK I really also thought what was interesting about it was this uh how obviously or maybe explicitly she drew off the experiences of like the young female starlet of the actually mm-hmm. the modern time not like of the debbie reynolds or whatever time but of the the christian stewart the jennifer lawrence's of our time you know, the very 2010s who you know experience or even britney for example who experienced like intense scrutiny of their private lives and almost a taking over of their entire lives for their jobs at quite a young age like the character of hadley who's the actress you know gets involved in acting in a blockbuster series in her teens um and then yeah. kind of comes up in those age and then ends up totaling her own career kind of half on purpose because of the pressure um and i was so interested in reading about that because it was actually something that i don't see very often like the discussion of those kinds of people and what life is like for them. And she drew it so well, you know, in terms of like the crazy fans who were obsessed with her relationship and saw it as real mm. and needed it. And the needy author who, uh, you know, had a little dog and uh, was obsessed with her book coming to life and was actually secretly in love with the protagonist <laughs> she'd written. I mean, I, I it's honestly like, I'm kind of obsessed with this, like, you know, the, the, the life of these you know, why a big blockbuster Twilight Hunger Games films, what their lives were like and the pressure mm. and the the reality of growing up, even like Emma Watson as a Hermione, never being able to escape that. I think that's, as an adult, growing up at the same time as those women, I think it's really, really interesting. And I really liked, I the character of Hadley, when when she said that she deliberately wanted to be a bit like a, a, a lime zest, right? Like a bright change. Hadley's stuff she wanted to be a bit of a change in the narrative I appreciate that actually because I did think Hadley's chapters were quite different and I had trouble getting into it but then talking to Maggie I really started to understand what she was going for and I appreciate it a bit more now that I've you know heard what she said about why she wanted Hadley to be like she is yeah and I liked the fact that that was taken as seriously as the exploration of being a female aviator and what it was like growing up in the Midwest in you know the 1920s and 30s I feel like it's just it was nice to see that as you say that the experience of people like Kristen Stewart and you know actually Maggie said in the interview that she explicitly was thinking about Twilight and wanting to comment on the explosion the explosive phenomenon that Twilight was when she was writing and I think seeing that being kind of like interrogated and investigated and the impact that that kind of fame has 
actually being looked at quite closely and with this like academic lens almost that she is the same lens in which she looks at Marion's story. And it's a discussion of like what's really going on behind the eyes of female actresses, especially young ones in the light of Me Too and stuff that I actually really understand and want to hear more of because, you know, yeah, people were cruel about Jennifer Lawrence and Kristen Stewart every time they put her foot out of line. And actually it's like, who was making the money? Them. Who was the industry relying on? Them. Who were these industry executives bullying? Them. There's always been an interest in women in the spotlight, but there's something very specific about once you get to like 2010 and beyond of like the level of scrutiny that people were under because it's not just the tabloid it's also the internet and you know there's a there's a section where um where Hadley and her ex-boyfriend who she starred in this like Twilight, Twilight-esque franchise with yeah. re- a reading fan fiction about them and you're like yeah that actually <laughs> like you can't even imagine what that's like like it, you know yeah. it, that um and I think that kind of being bombarded on all fronts um it must just be very surreal. And the way that the book kind of delves into that is just like quite an interesting one. Um, That section is not only different content wise, it's also quite different structurally and in in just how it's written because it's written from the first person. It's obviously a modern day voice. Uh, It's very different from the kind of close third person, the more traditional parts that concentrate on Marion. But I think, yeah, those two parts are blended very well and come to a satisfying conclusion as well. And yeah, to bring this conversation full circle, Oh, a great circle. Um, The book itself is out now. It was out a few weeks ago in the UK. It's out in hardback. So for those of you who don't like hardback, well, it's out in audiobook. It's also out on book. So we recommend also, as always, you go out there and if you buy any books, buy them from your local independent store. Do go out there, buy Maggie's book, enjoy it, spend some time with it. It'll take a bit of time, but spend some time with it. Uh, and yeah, and if you have any questions or comments about the book itself, well, you know where to find us on our socials, uh, Real LLW on Twitter, Love's Neighbours Watched on Instagram. Thank you again to Maggie uh, for coming on the show. We really liked chatting to you, uh, if you're listening. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we're going to move on to chat about some other things. books Mm. one of the big updates in the book world Mm. recently was the announcement of the women's prize shortlist Mm -hmm. so the women's prize for fiction is a uk-based book prize which celebrates and recognizes fiction written by women it's been running for the past several years last year's winner was maggie o'farrell for her book hamnet which helena i know you're reading now and i read and loved last year the previous year's winner was An American Marriage by Tayari Jones, which we also talked about at the time. And other notable previous winners include Naomi Alderman for The Power, Ali Smith for How to Be Both, Zadie Smith for On Beauty. So the books up for the prize that are on the shortlist are The Vanishing Hearth by Britt Bennett, uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clark, Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, Transcendent Kingdom by Yar Jesse. How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House by Sherry Jones and No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockhart. So a very interesting bunch of books uh, that we definitely have more things to say about. So yeah, an amazing selection of books on the shortlist. And there were also some fantastic books on the long list as well. I think for us, we were really excited to see The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett make the shortlist. 
we interviewed Britt Bennett last year about that novel. Uh, if you're interested, you can go back in our back catalogue and find that interview. But um, I've read quite a few of the books on the shortlist um, beyond Brit's novel, and it is just a really great selection. I'm so excited about so many of them. In fact, the, the only two I haven't read are Claire Fuller's Unsettled Ground and How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House by Sherry Jones. Um, so I'm definitely going to check those out so that I can complete my Women's Prize reading bonanza for 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling you earlier about Piranesi. Mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of defies genre. Like it's got elements of fantasy. Uh, it's quite an unsettling read. It's quite a short read. Uh, it's very visual. Um, and I'm, I, I still haven't come across like, I mean, it's obviously been very popular, but like of people I know, not that many people have seemed to have read it yet. So I'm really excited for more people to read it so that I can talk to people about it because I still don't quite know what to make of it. Uh, and it's been like a few months now since I finished it. You I'll have to get on it, it and yeah. And we can talk about it. One of the books on the shortlist that I read really recently was No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockhart, a very unusual and meta, but very engaging novel, which essentially is satirizing our internet culture and our sort of obsession with being online and being very online and being very engaged with the latest online memes and trends and discussions and slang and all of this. Um, The first half of the book is this woman who is incredibly online and she's like very involved with every meme, every like new Twitter phenomenon. And then the second half of the book, she sort of pulled back from this like internet hole that she's in and has to deal with a kind of family tragedy. Mm. And it's sort of about the juxtaposition between like being very online, whatever that means, and then actually being engaged in like your real life world with your friends and family and stuff. So one of the notable things about the writing style is Patricia Lockhart creates almost a sort of sci-fi feel because Twitter slash the internet is never referred to as such. It's called the portal the whole time. And it's like the main character is entering the portal every time she goes online. And similarly, Trump is referred to quite a bit in the book because obviously he was a big presence on Twitter at the time in which it was set, which is about 2018, 2019. And he is just referred to as the dictator. So by using that kind of language, Patricia Lockhart creates this sort of sci-fi, almost disconnect, but it's peppered throughout with all these references to memes and trends that characterised the internet in 2018-2019. So you are always being kind of reminded that this is not a sci-fi novel or a, a sort of dystopian type novel. It is like set in our real reality. The last book on the shortlist that I wanted to speak about is... Yar Jessie's Transcendent Kingdom. You probably know her from her incredibly acclaimed and beloved debut novel, Homegoing. Transcendent Kingdom is a wonderful follow-up. It's also a very different follow-up, which is quite interesting to note. So Homegoing is has a large scope. Each chapter is told from the perspective of a different descendant of these two half-sisters who you meet in Ghana in the 18th century. And the novel tracks their descendants all the way to the present day. Transcendent Kingdom, meanwhile, is a very intimate and interior novel about one family uh, told from the perspective uh, of one protagonist uh, who is coming to terms with her brother's passing. Her brother died as a consequence of the opioid crisis in the US. 
for me, it was a bit of a slow burn, but then I quickly was just completely enthralled by Yar's writing. Uh, she writes so lyrically, so beautifully, and she really conjures up uh, a sense of her protagonist's interiority and of her thoughts, and you're completely there with her through the journey of the novel, which has a really lovely ending as well, and it's just got this... Um, beautiful poignancy about it uh whilst also tackling some heavy and important themes including the opioid crisis and racism in the u.s um there's also some really interesting books on the long list that we'd want to mention like uh, nisha dolan's exciting times yes. we ourselves have spoken to nisha about her work and she's really taken off and yeah. i don't want to say a sally rooney way i don't think that they are the same i think it's more that there is this, this hunger for like uh, Irish young female writers in the publishing industry because they know how well Sally Rooney has done. I think Nisha has a lot of talent and her book has really taken off. People have really engaged with it. So if you don't know, Exciting Times is basically about this young woman who is in Hong Kong, basically mm -hmm. just, and it's set around Brexit as well, it's quite interesting. And it's just like all the relationships she has. Exciting Times is kind of like Kylie Reeves is such a fun age. You know, this is an, a an age or um, a kind of like time in your life where it's people say it's exciting people say it's mm. such a fun age it's like what it's like to be that young and I think that Nisha Reed really takes that really well uh, what is great about that book is it what it's like to be young and untethered and not know what you want and obviously there's a lot of representation in that book as well of like um, queer sort of characters as well so that's an important element that Nisha puts in and it's really amazing how much that book's taken off I see it everywhere it's funny I think that Nisha I don't speak for Nisha but I think she specifically would maybe reject being called relatable, mm. reject being called, again, like she does like the Sally Rooney, like she doesn't want to be compared to or, you know, try to pin down. But people do find that work very relatable, which is interesting given how, like, not weird, but how like specifically strange or odd or in odd situations that we have never ourselves been in that the characters in that book get into, like how she ends up like living with somebody that she like literally barely knows in mm. Hong Kong, who's like rich as hell. Yeah, I think it's like that candid style of writing people really respond to because even if you've not been in that specific scenario, mm. the novel has an emotional relatability and the emotions feel real and grounded and honest. And I think, yeah, readers really respond to that. And this year, I do think the Women's Prize acknowledged quite a few books that sort of fit into that category of, you know, just being emotionally candid in the writing one of the other books i wanted us to quickly talk about um which was also like exciting times long listed but not shortlisted was tori peter's detransition baby so i read and loved that book it's such a character study and you know me i love books where like it's just like we deep in go deep into the characters yeah nothing really happens like that's fine i, yeah. like, I want to kind of get to know the the individuals and their, their journeys and that you do very much in that novel mm. and tori peters is trans and the book is very much about the trans experience it centers on three characters reese ames and katrina so Reese is a trans woman who was previously in a relationship with Ames. At that point, Ames was a trans woman, but he has since detransitioned and he's now in a relationship with this cis woman, Katrina, and he and Katrina are having a baby. And Ames decides to get Reese involved in this situation and with the idea that she would help raise the child because she's always wanted a child herself. 
So that's the premise. And then we track each of these people's lives and thoughts and decisions as they kind of embark on this journey together. So I really love this book. It's not always a comfortable read, but it's revealing, interesting, often darkly humorous and emotional. And the characters have stuck with me. I think it was a well-deserved addition to the Women's Prize long list, but its inclusion on the list did get pushback, an unpleasant pushback from some transphobic sectors of the publishing industry. It was heartening to see so many in the publishing industry supporting Tori Peters, however, and the Women's Prize also condemned the attack and just reinforced that the prize is open to all women and that trans women are women. Yeah, when it comes to the women, comes to the Women's Prize, when it comes to detransition baby, I think obviously it has a complete place on the list. That's not up for up for debate. But I do think that the Women's Prize itself is inherently political, being an exclusionary prize, but also stepping into that debate about what is gender, what is femininity, what are we, why, why are we singling out women? Like, why do we need to do that? So I think that the most important thing is that that this is this is provoked discourse. This is pushed um, the sales of the book up, which is always good for any author. But also, I think, you know, anything that gets turfs out onto the street and then makes people more aware of the things they're saying so that more people can know this stuff is actually quite poisonous. I guess that's good in a really weird reverse way. eh? So, yeah, as I said, with Maggie Shipsbed, but go about go out and support trans authors and buy Detransition Baby um, because that's going to prove why it should be on the list as well. Yeah, absolutely. Other than that, we're going to move on to our more more chatty uh, time of the podcast where we just yes. talk about everything we've been liking. And um, for Jessica, I think I'm going to start you off okay. with uh, your recently found love for Sebastian Stan. And where has that come from? This is I was yeah. she was talking about this earlier and I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> Well, yeah. So as I detailed extensively in the last podcast, I watched One Division and loved it as you did too, Helena. Uh, but unlike you, I didn't have much of a history with the Marvel superhero universe. So that was like my first like proper foray in like watching a Marvel thing and really enjoying it, which led me to then watch The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the new Disney Plus show when that premiered literally a week after WandaVision finished. So unlike with WandaVision, I was not instantly hooked. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a more kind of conventional Marvel storytelling situation. And also I'd never seen any of the Captain America films. I literally had no idea who any, anything that was happening at all. Whereas yeah. with WandaVision, I think you don't really need to have seen the previous Narratively, films. Narratively, I think it's more, because it's so conceptual, yeah. I think it's easier to get on board with. I do think Captain America and the Winter Soldier is, it's very much a show that's trying to bridge the gap between the end of Infinity War, yeah. Endgame, and also what happened with Captain America. So, uh, yeah, for me, it, yeah, if you're if you're coming in fresh, then it's not the show. To yeah, be I was just completely lost, basically. Um, yeah, but then, so on Disney Plus, this is like maybe helpful intel for anyone who is delving into the Marvel world <laughs> you can like watch these sort of like little synopsis of the characters journeys so far really yeah yeah like which is probably really helpful even that if it's really good so yeah that helped me fill in the gaps of where we were who these characters were what their relationship was with Captain America long story short somewhere along the line I suddenly was like actually 
this is really cute. They're like friends and they're like kind of like they've come together. And I'm like, and suddenly I was like really on board with the show, which also engages with some really interesting political questions. It does. That's true. What what it means to be a black Captain America in the case of Anthony Mackie, Sam's um, character, who's kind of been given this shield, which has the stars and stripes on, and he has to kind of like engage with what does that mean? There's also like quite just interesting political commentary throughout the show. Yeah. Um, and that is what was keeping me interested when I was like very confused about <laughs> the actual like kind of superhero yeah. lore. And I know you, Helena, you watched the first episode and then kind of dropped off and overall weren't really sure about how well the story hung together and I would agree with that and I think um yeah this show is not one division it's not as innovative it's probably not going to kind of bring people into the Marvel world who weren't already there um that said it kind of did with me although I guess I was already kind of there so maybe it didn't really um but (laughs) all of that said I basically just ended up falling in love with Sebastian (laughs) in the process of watching the show and I knew who he was right because I watched Gossip Girl back in the day yeah so I'd watched Gossip Girl and I kind of like vaguely knew that he went from Gossip Girl to being in Marvel and stuff. So I, I sort of knew that, but like it was very much on the periphery of my mind. Then like, okay, well, I'm going to have to go and watch all these Captain America films. Mm. So you have me since we last podcasted having watched Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah. Okay. Thoughts on that one. Um, <laughs> I still find the concept of Captain America very cringy. But as you say, yeah. Chris Evans sells it. He does sell like, it. He manages to make you, like, believe it as a thing and not be just completely... Propagandary, like, weirdy, yeah. culty, yeah. And also it was the 1940s, so I can kind of go with that. Yeah, sure. Um, and I actually really enjoyed that film. It was very, like, pulpy and kind of I really, Steven Spielberg-y. I really like um, Hayley Atwell. Yes, She's so her. good. Yeah. We really recommend her show, Agent Carter. Okay, <laughs> maybe that's my next um, there is another, There's another cute man in that. Good. Um, and she wears some really awesome outfits and has really mm. cool lipstick. And also Stanley Tucci as yeah, the German scientist. So, <laughs> so yeah. cute, I love it. And then I really enjoyed like young Sebastian Stan as like young Bucky. Like yeah. that was very cute. Um, and just cemented my already yeah. growing crush. Yeah, I mean, when was it, when was it out? Like, 2011. Oh, yeah. So you were yeah. catching up with everyone else in 2011. I know. The rest like, of us. <laughs> hilarious. Like, it's 2021. But, yeah. And then I watched Captain America, The Winter Soldier. With the knife, the knife spin. <laughs> I think for me, also, what I like about Captain America series in general is, like, the fact that it's the crux of that, the crux of um, Captain America's um, journey, Steve Rogers' journey, mm. is his undeniable love for Bucky. Like, literally, the whole way through, every time he sees Bucky, he's like, Bucky! And then he just changes all his plans and betrays all his friends. And it's like, Bucky, I must go after Bucky. Bucky's yeah. my friend. Um, and I love it. Like, There's built on this just like crazy, deep, emotional friendship between the two of them. Uh, I'm not going to comment on what kind of relationship it is because I'm not going to go into the fan fiction area with this. Because <laughs> right. I also support Steve and Peggy. But yeah, I really enjoy how like the one of the biggest plot points in all of Marvel was Steve's love for Bucky. Like, that makes him change his mind and do things differently all the time. So why did no one tell me this? Because people told me that Captain America Civil War was about a disagreement about, like, some kind of political accords between Iron Man and Captain America. It's about Bucky, It's about Bucky. It's about Bucky. but, But no, like, in all seriousness, I think... It is actually really nice to see a male friendship kind of being prioritized in that way. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, it's like they did it so explicitly. Steve is just like Bucky, 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 Bucky all the time. Like, where is he? What's he doing? I must find out. You know. So, um, 
Uh, and I think that is, it's really, uh, it's funny, it's it's funny to see someone retrospectively <laughs> go through and look at all uh, this stuff. It, yeah, well, I will keep you posted on my Marvel journey, which I'm sure will continue. Yeah, so, you know, to, you know, to kind of think ahead when it comes to what Marvel are doing next, um, I'm actually really excited for their next show, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, meh. Nah. but Loki the new show coming out has a lot more of WandaVision vibes to it I would say in terms of being a bit like magical realist containing mm. one of my favourite characters Owen Wilson no uh, actually obviously Loki and Tom Hiddleston um, and also just like really playing with the genre it looks really interesting in that way so we're going to hold off talking about it um, until it comes out because it's coming out pretty soon actually so that'll be saved for our June episode but um, yeah definitely looking forward to what Marvel are bringing next especially did you see that trailer they did of all the stuff that's coming out in the next four years oh yeah i did um when they sort of named the different films and, oh and um, it's so emotional how do they do it they're crazy so yeah i'm really excited to see what those see what the next 10 years of my life bring when it comes to marvel as i said disney plus sort of creepily seemed to understand my soul <laughs> when it was like oh so you like ugly betty lizzie mcguire and also marvel <laughs> and it like recommended me this show Dollface, which stars kat dennings who we know from wandavision where she played darcy but she's also like just very born yeah. she's done a lot of things didn't she yeah, she's like, in kind of girls, stuff. but she's in broke uh, girls two broke girls yeah and basically the concept is that kat dennings boyfriend breaks up with her and then she realizes that she's kind of just completely neglected her female friends in like the five year period of her relationship. And she kind of retreats back to them and sort of tries to like get back in touch with them. And they're played by Brenda Song. Oh, Brenda Disney Song, London Tipton. Yeah. And then Shay Mitchell, who was in Pretty Little Liars. Oh yeah. Um, and then she makes a new friend who is played by Esther Pavinsky, who was in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Right. And then it's basically like just there, them hanging out. But it's it's quite surreal. You know, she's like debating whether or not to go out. And she's like put on a, a fake game show of like all the things that will happen, whether she does or doesn't go out. And it's like oh. if she doesn't go out, she'll get FOMO. So it's a bit like Scrubs. It's sort of like the, flat, the weird yeah. flashbacks. It's genuinely making me laugh out loud. Yeah, really enjoying. Um, and I thought Disney was very... It's probably listening to me right now as I record. Hi, it's like, she liked this. <laughs> Hi, Bob. I, Bob. Bob. Bob Iver, Bob Iger, the guy who's the CEO. The Disney man. I yeah. think I'm confusing him with um, Iver, Bon Iver. Bon Iver. Bon Iver, is that his name? It's Bon yeah. Iver. You say it like Bon Iver, yeah. Oh, I've been calling him Bon Iver for ages. Oh, yeah, me, me too for like 10 years, but, oh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I think that is us concluded for mm-hmm. the show. Um, we are on Twitter at RealLLW. Uh, we're on there tweeting. Um, we'll let you know when we have new stuff coming out on there and on Instagram, which is at Watched. No punctuation, all lowercase. Um, we post about what we're doing on there as well. Um, if we ever get to go outside, we like to put that on our stories, but we never get to go outside anymore. So, uh, And then also we have a business email, lovesaberswatch at gmail.com, uh, all lowercase again, no punctuation. And if you want to contact us about a book you want us to talk about, a guest you want us to have on the show, anything like that, you can contact us on there. And Francesca will get back to you because I don't <laughs> manage the email inbox. Lucky for me. We also just wanted to say thank you so much to Maggie Shipstead for coming on the podcast. It was so fantastic to speak to her about Great Circle. And the book is available in the US and the UK wherever good books are sold. Uh, We'll be back next month with more chat. Bye. Bye!